Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Rounding the Earth podcast. Rounding the Earth is a popular newsletter series published on Substack, written by applied statistician and educator Matthew Crawford. Topics of discussion range from critical analysis of conventional wisdom to Bitcoin and everything in between. And of course, most recently, the COVID-19 pandemic. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about. Subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Substack, Rumble, and YouTube to join a burgeoning research community and to help us unflatten the Earth. My name is Liam Sturgis. I'm a musician, music producer, and writer slash editor coming at you live from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I will be your host for today. And please allow me to introduce the author of Rounding the Earth and my co-host for the podcast, Matthew Crawford. How are you, Matthew? Great, Liam. How are you? Oh, very good. I got my coffee raring to go. <laughs> it's my second podcast today. Yeah, in fact, same. Uh, it sounds like uh, uh, our, our guest as well is coming off of, uh, an- I, I think he said he's pulled yet another all-nighter working hard, fighting the good fight. So allow me to introduce Dr. Stephen Pellick. How are you, sir? I'm fine, thanks. It's good to join you, Liam and Matthew. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining us. Yes, we really appreciate it. Now, we have another guest joining us in a little bit, but we figured we'd use this first uh, 10 minutes or so to get to know you, Steve, and and hear a bit about the work you've done, the very important work in the COVID-19 context. Do you mind introducing yourself to the audience for some who may be familiar with your work, others who may not be? Yeah, no, no problem. Uh, again, it's Dr. Stephen Pellick. I'm a professor in the Division of Neurology at the University of British Columbia, where I've been on faculty for, I guess, about 34 years now. I'm also the president of Conexus Bioinformatics Corporation. Uh, this company does... Uh, I guess analysis for cancer and and diabetes research um, and neurological disorders for I guess about 2000 labs that we've serviced in, I guess, uh, hospitals and universities and companies the last 22 years. It's actually my second company. And I'm also the chair, co-chair, I should say, of the Canadian COVID Care Alliance, uh, the Scientific and Medical Advisory Committee uh, it's one of about 18 committees. And, and of course, uh, I know Liam through my interactions with him through the, we say the CCCCA. Yeah. So that's sort of a bit of my background. Uh, I study with the Conexus, uh, a clinical trial that we've been monitoring the levels of antibodies against uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus in people, both uh, from natural immunity and also from uh, vaccines. So I can talk a little bit about that today. Yeah. Um, before you uh, dive into what you've seen in terms of um, uh, antibody studies, uh, could you give the audience a little bit of a discussion? I know that immunology is a huge field. In fact, I'm used to, um, uh, I, I, I'm a generalist who likes to dive into new areas and try mm-hmm. to gain, a, a, you know, to hold on, on expertise. But um Uh, I found that studying immunology was just so broad and so huge. And my wife, who's also a biochemist, um, you know, at some point explained to me that that we have more immune systems than she knows the name for. Um, (laughs) But uh, but 
when we're talking about viruses, we are talking uh, about an area of the immune system that perhaps we can make a little bit simpler for an audience. What are our main primary defense mechanisms uh, against a virus like coronavirus? Sure. Well, I mean, we actually have a very extensive immune system that has many different components to it. Uh, it's like an army, navy, and air force. And so uh, the, the first defenses that we have, especially as children, is what we call our innate immune system. So these are macrophages and other white blood cells that travel around your lungs, for example, and in your airway spaces that, that clean up viruses and bacteria that may enter through the air you know, into your respiratory system or into your intestinal system. And so what happens is these are very nonspecific. They're very effective. Um, but as you get older, you're exposed to these um, viruses and bacteria and fungi and parasites. And so your body develops what's called an adaptive immune system that it utilizes. And that's primarily two components. The, the T cells, which will go and attack any cells of your own body that are actually infected with a virus or a bacteria, and also B cells. And B cells, like T cells, are lymphocytes. And these lymphocytes, they, they produce antibodies. And so antibodies are, are like a little sticky protein that has a high affinity for the target protein that might be present on the surface of a virus or a bacteria. So these, these um, B cells shoot out these antibodies like artillery, it goes through your circulation, also can be in your airway spaces and, in, and intestinal system. And what it'll do is it'll lock on to the virus or the bacteria, tag it, and allow the innate immune system to better recognize it and basically eat it up, digest it, and again, educate more B cells to make antibodies and T cells to be more specific. And so as you get more and more exposure to um, these kind of environmental infectious agents, pathogens, your body recognizes it when it comes again and you take it out much faster with less likelihood for a severe uh, illness as a consequence. So it's uh, can I um, can I yeah. interject something here? So what you're talking about is something that happens, you know, kind of at the surface layer, right? You're talking about airways. You're talking about, and, and even though we're talking about the digestive system, are we still talking about the epithelial layer? Yeah. Well, what happens is you have these immune cells. They travel all throughout your body. They'll be in your circulation. They'll be in what we call the lymphatic system, which basically is in spaces includes between your cells uh, as well they'll travel into your airway spaces into your lungs effectively outside your body because you know your intestinal system is actually outside of your body as is you know your 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 lungs where the air exchange is occurring so these lymphocytes white blood cells they can travel anywhere pretty much in your body but most people get infected through their mouths or their noses. And so you tend to have respiratory illnesses with pathogens like SARS-CoV-2, or you can have intestinal um, bacteria or viruses that cause a problem. And that's when 
you you'll feel it more in in your intestinal system so different viruses will flourish in different locations depending usually on whether you have receptors by which those viruses can actually enter into cells so even though there may be hundreds of thousands of different species of viruses and bacteria uh, that are out there in the environment, very few of them actually are pathogenic to people. Uh, probably just under 200 viruses that we know about, yet the vast majority are benign. They don't affect us. And most of the viruses that do, uh, they are also benign. They don't actually make us sick. Uh, they're present all the time and they, they'll reproduce very slowly. They don't kill the host. The host doesn't even know in most cases that they have been infected, and this allows the virus to propagate. So the best viruses are highly infectious, and they're very benign. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I heard um, uh, Stephanie Sinoff talking about, you know, one theory of viruses, which is that, you know, the world is always just exchanging genetic information. Yes. And that it may be part of, uh, you know, what you might just think of as the balance of the system. Well, you know, the human genome, it's about 3 billion base pairs long. So these are our A, T, Cs, and Gs, like the alphabet of genetic material. And if you look at the, the percentage of the human genome, as big as it is, um, with 3 billion base pairs, only about two and a half percent of it actually encodes genes, about 20,000 or so proteins that are basically the little molecular robots that, that make us alive. They, 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 they allow cells to survive and, and, and thrive. However, when you look more closely at the genome, you actually find that there's remnants of viruses that are actually in the human genome that you actually have more genetic material of junk pieces of viruses than you actually do of coding genes for your own proteins that are essential for your life. So the human genome is really a historical record of the, the insertion and propagation of viruses that have affected the human species. So for example, we know in the AIDS virus, there's at least 300 examples throughout the genome of AIDS virus-like protein sequ gene sequences that are interspersed in the human genome. So the, the latest uh, HIV um, is really just one of many experiences that humans have faced in our evolution. Interesting. Yeah. My wife studies um, uh, some of these uh, ancient uh, viruses that are that are in the genome, uh, and she studies mm -hmm. jumping genes just a little bit. You know, like you said, biochemistry is pretty broad. So she's right. one, day, one day she's studying p fifty three, and another day she's studying um, jumping genes. But uh, it, it's interesting that uh, our our machinery is complex enough that we don't even know for certain uh, how much the uh, how much of the genome is operable in some sort of uh, you know helpful sense or, or or is necessary for our functioning. Though I suspect. I suspect that in a sense it all is. No, I, I'm of the, the opinion that actually most of the genome is completely useless. <laughs> it, it's baggage. And, and, and I, the reason why I came to this conclusion is that the smallest mammalian genome is in the bat. 
and the largest genome is apparently in the shrew for for mammals and the shrew genome is almost double the size in terms of number of base pairs as there is in the bat humans are sort of in between uh these two so i if you ask me i think the bat is much better than the shrew i mean it can fly it can see you know with radar it's very sophisticated and it's got a lot less dna <laughs> so yeah i really do believe that the vast majority of the genome is junk and it's not necessary it's very expensive uh, in terms of of duplicating every time that your cells divide and in fact uh, we've had the encode project which has spent a lot of time and money uh, over well over i guess 14 years now since the sequencing of the genome was first done trying to figure out well, what is most of this genetic material for and as it turns out they they've kind of come to the conclusion that that the that there are all these elements that are in there that are necessary but i think they're really just there because somehow the cell has to manage the whole thing all this excess genetic material and actually when you go to some of the other species like lungfish for example the amount of dna they have is is it, it, it's excessive and plants they have even way more dna than uh, mammals do in fact mammals have um, probably more dna than you would find in a reptile or a fish um, but as you as you look through evolution mammals have all this extra dna i think the reason for it is that it actually is like a buffer so that when you have the integration of viruses into that genome you're not um having those integrate close to important genes that are necessary for the organism to function ah that's interesting you see i would still think of that as a function and my economist brain wants me to to, to keep an open mind to there being some functionality, whether it's buffer or whether it's something else. Um, but I'm, I'm steering us off course a little bit here. So let, let's go back to, um, let's go back to the basics, B cells and T cells. So, um, you know, we experience a virus and these amazing machines that we inhabit, <laughs> um, they, they do their thing and, and they, they work where they need to work in order to handle the virus as best as possible. Um, it, how is that different from when you get a vaccine? Um, you know, if, if you get it into the muscle or into your bloodstream, and then there's uh, a, a response elicited, um, antibodies or possibly other responses, uh, are they going to be, are they going to wind up in the same places? Because, you know, virus first touches us in the airways and the digestive system. Mm -hmm. Most are, you know, for, for a lot of them are possibly through the eyes. Um, and ears. And years, yeah, and and uh, are are is the response if if it's similar antibodies, are they going to be in the same places? Yeah, and that's a very good question. They be in the same places, and, and actually, as it turns out, there are different classes of antibodies, and the kind of antibodies that you get when you vaccinate, you know, we have an infection in your bloodstream, you get what we call an IgG response. That's that's most robust. And it, these IgG antibodies, they last about 21 days in your circulation, but they get replaced by more antibodies from those B cells I talked about. But in your lung and airway spaces and also your intestinal system, 
you actually produce secreted antibodies. These are called IgM antibodies initially, and then IgA antibodies. They only last about five, six days, but again, you're continually pumping out more antibodies as you need them. What's important is the B cells that produce these antibodies, whether they establish memory. And so you can have what's called plasma B cells or memory B cells, and these remain in your body. They don't die off. They actually hibernate. Um, they go into a quiescent state. If there is no uh, pathogen there that that antibody recognizes, the threat is gone. And so basically the, the B cells go to sleep. But then when you get reinfected, they reactivate. And we can have B cells that are reactivated even decades after the initial exposure. And we can see for SARS-CoV-2, certainly in our own research, we've monitored people even two and a half years after they were sick now. And they still have antibodies that recognize the original SARS-CoV-2 proteins that they did initially, uh, even two and a half years later. Well, am so, I right that with SARS-CoV-1, people had antibody responses 17 years later or something like that's that? That's correct. Even today, those people still will have a good response against SARS-CoV-1. And we've actually tested that ourselves uh, by, by creating tests that use the, the protein sequences from SARS-CoV-1 and people today still have good antibodies that recognize that. So you did some, uh, uh, Liam, go ahead. Oh yeah, no, that's a fantastic transition because Dr. Uh, or Stephen, early in the pandemic, Conexus had, uh, may, and maybe you could share this anecdote um, about how you came to be testing rather early on for immunity in the populations of, of Vancouver and Ontario and what you found and perhaps what it signified at the time. Right. Well, I mean, it's one of those things where <clears throat> the world was facing a, what was a new virus we knew very little about. We had technology at Conexus that allows us to recreate any proteins that we're interested in, in fragments as peptides, we call them. And uh, those peptides, <clears throat> that's basically what happens when your immune system eats a virus, digests it into pieces called peptides, and then presents those peptides with what we call major histocompatibility antigens <clears throat> with um, antigen-presenting cells to the B cells and T cells. And that's how they, 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 you select a, a B cell, for example, that has that high affinity, once it, it's, it's stimulated, it grows and divides, creates a whole clonal army of identical B cells producing identical antibodies that recognize that particular structure that's in that peptide. So we can make these peptides, and we did. We actually took the 28 proteins in the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the spike and nucleocapsid are amongst the most better known, but there's actually 28 of these proteins. We made them all. And we made them in overlapping pieces. So we had about 5,000 different pieces of SARS-CoV-2. And we took, and they're arrayed as individual spots for different, different pieces. So then we take blood from people who have actually had COVID. And that was the first challenge, finding people that, that in fact were infected with the virus. 
Um, but we, we were able to get it. And when we took blood from these people, they have antibodies. And if the antibodies recognize any parts of that virus, then they stick to our membranes, uh, our tests, and then we can visualize which parts of those 5,000 different parts, which of those is it that people make antibodies against. And so when we did that, we found several hundred parts that different people make antibodies against. And then we tried to find those parts that were the most common in different people, got it down to about 110 different parts. And then from that, we did, we did about 500 people that way that we tested. And then we did another about at least 3000 plus people that we did with a 41 marker test, which is what we're using today. And so we found early on in May of uh, 2020, the first wave that 90% of about 276 healthy adults that were actually half of them healthcare workers all had antibodies against that recognized SARS-CoV-2 sequences. Did you say 96 out of 276? 90%. Oh, 90%. Of the 276 <laughs> people tested had so already that early during the pandemic. And nucleic acid proteins and additional proteins that were in our tests. And not just with our test, it was actually with another test from a different company was tested in parallel. And we, we got the same results with both. Yeah. I now, I've had discussions with people. If I could jump in, I, I'm curious as your opinion on this. Um, I've had uh, several discussions with people. I, I've wondered if um, SARS-CoV-2 was around longer than we knew, if it was already circulating all over the globe, perhaps mm -hmm. um, perhaps even as, as far back as 2017. But uh, you know, I, I, I see pieces of evidence here and there of 2018 or 2019 spread. And, you know, 90 percent, uh, you know, when I think about um, what it would take to even get to 90 percent, if 90 percent, uh, you would need uh, an R of 10, you know, if 90 percent is endemic. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, and, and it maybe maybe R was suppressed because so many people had it when we started measuring it. Yeah, well, this is the thing. Um, we've tested a lot of blood from. 2018 for control samples and amazingly we find that some of those control samples have antibody levels against SARS-CoV-2 multiple SARS-CoV-2 proteins the same as a person who's actually had COVID-19 wow. um, so that was one thing the other is that we do know of course that cold coronaviruses are quite rampant and people, there's a lot of similarity in the number of those proteins. So it is possible that you'll have parts that are shared that antibodies against a cold coronavirus may be there and protect you against SARS-CoV-2. So I think that's going on. We found that in our study, and like I said, we've actually done over 3,700 people now. And when we looked, you know, about 1,500 of them had COVID-like symptoms at some point. And we find that three quarters of those people had those symptoms in December, 2019, January and February and March of 2020. So we already know that the vast majority of people we've tested, and this includes people not just from BC, but from, for example, Ontario, that the virus was already spreading around long before officially it came here. And in fact, it's very interesting 
genome sequencing studies are indicating that when they started to do these studies more in, in May, June, and on, that the variant that we had seemed to have come via Europe. And so the BC Center for Disease Control and the CanGene, um, they believe that the virus really hit us from Europe, which, which actually is pretty incredible when you think about it, because I mean, Vancouver is a gateway to the Orient. The entire we, West Coast. Right, yeah. we have a large Chinese population that, that, you know, very successful business people go back and forth regularly. This happened Seattle, also San Francisco. on New Year's. Yeah. I mean, it, to think that that somehow it didn't come directly from China, but came via Europe, doesn't make any sense. So I think right. what happened is that we had a variant early on that was quite infectious. A lot of people were exposed to it. And just as you may have noticed that the, the um, Omicron, you know, Delta was the predominant virus in BC in November of 2021. <clears throat> and then next month, it was completely supplanted pretty much by the Omicron, you know, B1, B2 versions. So we know that if you have a more, <clears throat> excuse me, infectious virus, and in fact, it is able to very quickly replace an earlier variant. So I think that's what happened in BC. By the time they got to this genome sequencing, we are the variant that we had had already come and was replaced by the one from Europe. So I think that's what's going on. But I, I agree with you that, that it's probably very likely that we've had coronaviruses repeatedly over the last 20 years. And uh, one has to wonder, well, what happened to SARS-CoV-1? How could this spread around the world? We have these deaths. It's infectious. It's actually more deadly than SARS-CoV-2, as it turns out. And yet, no vaccine, no special, you know, <clears throat> protections as part of trying to isolate some of these people that had this very infectious virus, it, it disappeared. Well, that's very unlikely. Yeah. What's more likely is that a it was replaced by a more benign version that people weren't as ill from. And then what happened was they actually then made antibodies that got immune protection. And then it, it wasn't there to then infect the more vulnerable and so you don't have the deaths like we've been seeing with COVID too. So I think probably we're into our seventh wave now. And what seems to be driving that is now the vaccines. Well, let's use this as a natural transition point. We're very fortunate not to have just Steve, but we have a second wonderful guest who I'm going to bring in right now. Please welcome Dr. James Lyons-Weiler. How are you, sir? Well, I'm very good, and I'm even better now to have. A, I've been sitting backstage listening to Dr. Kolek, and a, you know, it's an honor to meet you, sir. You're you're yeah. extremely well informed. Likewise, uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's been really enjoyable uh, learning a few things from you. That's great. Well, if you don't mind, there's going to be a lot of folks listening who are familiar with your work, James, and perhaps some who are not. So, would you sure. mind introducing yourself to the audience? Sure. So uh, I founded an independent research institute called the Institute for Peer and Applied Knowledge around 2015 um, to conduct research in the public interest without any profit motive. Uh, I wanted it to I wanted to make a contribution to the world where there was 
biomedical research done without any profit motive, given how far astray much of biomedical research has gone. Um, it, it was a brainchild as a result of writing my book, Cures Versus Profits, where I challenged myself to find things in biomedical research worth celebrating in spite of the profit motive after my book on Ebola, but before my book on autism. And so, uh, yeah, um, I did that. And then I also created IPAC EDU, where we now have um, 23 instructors and 28 courses or so, uh, where we teach college level courses to people who never could make it to university or didn't want to go to university, but they wanted to have the college level experience, university type experience of education. That's at ipa-edu.org. And we're just starting to market our fall uh, offerings of courses. And they're just uh, incredibly dense in information. You're going to learn the fundamentals from ipac-edu.org, uh, as well as a number of really applied interest courses. I taught an immunology course. And listening to Steve, I can tell that he probably should have taught the course rather than me. But I had 107 students in my class uh, in the spring, and we offer that annually. So uh, yeah, check check that out. I'm a biomedical research scientist, and I write the, um, the Substack Popular Rationalism, uh, which is fairly popular. So I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, mention to the audience, I, I'm uh, currently reading um, uh, one of Dr. Lyonsweiler's books, um, this one right here, about a third of the way through, and uh, um, it's, it's very informative and, and uh, well-organized. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for signing up, Liam. That's that's, that's awesome. Uh, so, yeah, I, I was criticized in that book for not mentioning the microbiome. So you should know that one of the courses that we're teaching, it actually starts tomorrow, is a master class in the microbiome. And we have uh, four instructors. We're going to be going into the microbiology of the microbiome, um, the uh, microbiome and health, of course, toxins in the environment and their effect on the microbiome, the, immu the immune system in the microbiome, uh, nutrition, uh, foodology, you know, fermentation, foodology, and then also uh, um, microbiome and the mind. So the gut brain axis and the effects of microbiome. I just learned from one of the potential instructors that our microbiome actually produces hormone-like uh, chemicals and neurotransmitters that can actually affect our mood as directly one-to-one -one correspondence. So if you feel it in your gut, you know, it's probably a consensus vote and take some time, take a deep breath and, you know, think about things, think it through. But yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, uh, fellows. Thanks for having me. It's, it's genuinely it's our pleasure. It's interesting, James. The, I would say that we've learned more about the microbiome in the last decade than all the time prior to that. Agreed. And it is very interesting that, that some of the studies that have been done with the microbiome, we begin to realize the importance of things like our appendix, for example. You know, people you know, tend to get rid of it, but they don't realize that it's actually a place to store part of your microbiome in your gut intestinal right. flora so that if you are sick and you are infected and you have diarrhea and you clear out your intestinal system you've got this reserve there that can repopulate with the right bacteria that's perfect for you that's sort of evolved over time over your lifetime absolutely and absolutely correct as an ecologist you know my my, my phd is in evolutionary biology with ecology uh that's called a refugium <laughs> so so these things don't go extinct but uh 
my book on cures versus profits has a chapter on fecal matter transplant. I thought that was fascinating. Yes. But it was really before the science that showed that uh, you know the microbiome is so critically important in autism. So my culpa to all the people who knew about the microbiome, the moms and the dads and the grandparents well before I did. Um, but it's not, don't, go, don't go to the book on autism for anything, a microbiome. What I wanted to do in that book was to say, all right, listen, maybe CDC fudged the data on autism since William Thompson came out and said, hey, CDC, I'm CDC. We fudged the data on autism and vaccines. Maybe they did that out of an abundance of caution. Or maybe vaccines don't cause autism. So I challenged myself to read 2,000 studies. It, it wasn't a magic number. I read 1,000, came up with the structure of a book to find out, is there any residual information in animal studies? What's the mechanism of action of vaccine ingredients that might contribute to autism in some way? And so, yeah, there's. And what's the relative contribution of genetics and environment? And so even though it was published in 2015, I think it's you know the world's greatest compendium of of knowledge on that on those types of questions, um, and I want to do version 2.0, but I don't want to rewrite these chapters. I want to bring in domain experts and have them you know tell me what I'm missing and bring in more depth and background because I'm not an expert you know in everything in that book. Um, well, but, I'd like to I'd like to have you back sometime and and uh, and focus on the material. Uh, specifically uh, from the book and, and environmental, um, you know, causes of, of autism and, and other disease. Um, I, I'm curious, uh, you know, in, in, in your experience uh, collecting information on that, um, it, what did you learn that, that could be helpful for understanding what we're seeing with the COVID-19 vaccines, where more and more data seems to be coming out that says um, post-vaccination populations around the world, uh, and, and I looked at, at data from every nation and uh, this, this is about seven months ago, I came up 87% of nations were having more cases per day post vaccination campaign. Yeah. So, you know, what, what is it that we know from, from, you know, vaccination that might help us understand that? Okay. So the person that I like to push people towards is, uh, a Dr. Jacques Fantini. Uh, he has a, a study out, uh, and it's a warning and it, he leaves a question mark in his title about antibody-dependent enhancement. Um, now, Geert van den Bosch has taken that as part of his background knowledge, and he says, yes, ADE is part of the mix here. Uh, but, Geert, uh, sorry, Dr. Fantini's message is backed by data coming from simulations, and it's a fascinating, fascinating natural history of antibody-dependent enhancement. You guys were just talking about the relative immunity, natural immunity, uh, that might be present in the population due to SARS-CoV-1 and other prior coronaviruses. Well, Dr. Fantini says that um, for the Wuhan 1 virus, the very first virus that was found in humans causing uh, problems in the lungs, that when he modeled using computational molecular biology, extremely, extremely accurate and complicated and, and uh, high resolution modeling of how the Wuhan 1 spike protein actually uh, approaches the cell membrane, then he said for the Wuhan 1 antibodies produced by Wuhan 1 spike protein, there would be no antibody dependent enhancement. He also said for the alpha variant, there would be no antibody-dependent enhancement. And he started to predict antibody-dependent enhancement, or ADE, uh, with gamma. So as gamma spike protein approaches the cell membrane, it interacts not only with the cell membrane and the ACE2 
receptors we all know, but also some raft proteins, he calls them. And it's very clear that um, the, the wrong antibody in the right place at the wrong time will cause uh, a SARS-CoV-2 variant to enter the cell much more easily. Now, when gamma was circulating, and, and uh, Dr. Pollack is exactly correct, uh, Steve is exactly correct, that, that, that we have very rapid succession of viral types over time that replace each other. But uh, for, 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 for Delta, there was no vaccine during gamma. But the vaccine was entered into Europe at the same time that Delta was approaching Europe. And he said that the Asian population didn't experience antibody-dependent enhancement because they had broad natural immunity due to SARS-CoV-1. That's his hypothesis to explain why it didn't happen. But he's convinced that, um, that the virus was spread throughout Europe as a result of the vaccination due to ADE. And looking at his data, looking at the publication. Now, if you go and listen to his video, he's very apologetic. He's walking that thin, that very thin political line mm. where he's saying, hey, ADE has not been determined to date experimentally. Some people are taking that to say that he's saying it's not happening, but he's not. He's And he's saying, I don't want to say anything bad about the vaccines, but hey, you know, ADE is probably happening. So he's trying to couch it. And he's a very fast talker. Uh, so I, on my Substack, I, I published this uh, um, analysis of his paper, but also the entire transcript of his YouTube video. It's so important to understand that, you know, I, I'm the guy that coined the term pathogen yeah. priming. That's my uh, fault. Please forgive me. <laughs> that was okay. me pulling up the actual video. <laughs> so, so I'm the guy that, that coined the term pathogenic priming. Pathogenic priming is a completely different problem. But for a while there, it was confused by the two. And, and Bobby Kennedy got it right when he was saying you could actually induce autoimmunity. Right. And, and it's true from viral infections. We know it's a matter of fact that you can get autoimmunity from viral infections. Not a problem. Ganbare is an autoimmune condition. So if you put these same viral proteins into a vaccine, you should totally expect autoimmunity from a vaccine. Just because you move the protein from the virus into the vaccine doesn't mean it's magically now indemnified from the risk of autoimmunity. So when SARS-CoV-2 sequence was first published, I analyzed the 28 proteins seeking out the epitopes in each protein that would cause a B-cell immune response. And then from those B-cell immune response epitopes, those are the ones that our immune system actually can see which ones are so close to human proteins that there's a high risk of autoimmunity. And then I published a big table of the tissues. And I'm sad to say that Aristo Vajdani at Harvard University took it upon himself and his team actually run the laboratory experiments to validate this, that it would produce B cells in, in, in situ. And um, uh, in, 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 and he did. He, he Unfortunately, he validated that there would be, and he, he actually ex repeated my analysis and expanded it to include mitochondrial proteins, which I hadn't thought of. So the Vajdani et al. paper, here's IPAC, this tiny, tiny little research institution, barely funded by the public, just hanging on. And Harvard University comes along and says, yep, that were there, those guys are right over there. Um, sure, you know, for my scientific ego, great, but for humanity, it's horrible. Um, the spike protein has the large, second largest number or is tied with, I think, the uh, another protein in the, encoded by the uh, SARS-CoV-2 for the number of immunogenic epitopes. But I think every protein in the, pro in the virus has the, uh, an immunogenic epitope that is a high risk for autoimmunity, except one. And my message was clear back in April of 2020. Think about the time frame of the pandemic. Here I am in April 2020 saying 
peer-reviewed, not not a preprint, peer-reviewed paper, right? Everybody else got got away with uh, Moderna and these guys. They got away with press releases as science, no peer review. And we'll show you the data later. Give us the you know regulators now. We'll show you the data later. I just published this as a normal paper and uh, wasn't a special issue or invited or anything. So it, it sailed through peer review. It's open access because the public paid for it. And uh, unfortunately, the predictions were correct. And so what I think we ought to do in my message now is we need to reformulate vaccines so that we exclude the unsafe epitopes. Whatever that does to our ability to induce uh, reactive, uh, you know, vi virus reactive um, immune responses should come second to the problem that we're causing chronic illness. Uh, can, can I jump in with, with a question here? Um, because uh, you, you've reminded me of something that uh, you and I discussed um, after I read some papers that were published. I, I guess publication started around September 2020. And this is something that, that, that has frustrated me about the entire pandemic. Of course, we've all heard 94% of people who die from COVID-19 have at least one comorbidity and a pretty high percentage have two or more. Okay. Um, and of course, uh, a very high percentage are elderly. Um, but out of the rest, there, there are immune disorders that seem to be interacting with COVID-19. Uh, and, and this may, um, it, this, I, I don't uh, know enough to understand them, but I know that there's one that is an auto interferon antibody disorder that uh, seems to be present in it. I, I think the number has been debated a bit, but just this one disorder in 20% of the mortality, which made me wonder, is there anybody in the pie who doesn't have one of those two things, either some other comorbidity, um, probably elderly, but or has um, some specific uh, something specific in their own, you know, biochemistry or about yeah. themselves or genetics. Um, is, is it basically the case that almost everybody else uh, would find this virus harmless? Okay, so this is fascinating because the statistic that six, sticks out in my mind, another kind of the second most important thing that's been reported uh, other than Fantini's results are, are the studies that show that something like 78% of people that got serious COVID or died from COVID had prior autoimmunity to other, uh, for other reasons. So they had prior autoimmunity antibodies, the detectable antibodies um, in their blood uh, at the time that they were infected with COVID. Whereas for people that had mild COVID, it was only like seven or 8%. So we go from like 80% of people that had serious COVID already have TH2 skewed immune systems they're not getting a TH1 response, which would be healthier and more helpful with um, the, the, the with a viral. Uh, their, their innate immunity is probably somewhat compromised, but that TH2 skew is a serious problem in our population. We know that already with something like 54% of uh, children, of people under the age of 20 having some chronic illness uh, and, and autoimmunity. And so if there's anything that we can do to modulate the risk, it would be to, number one, don't get old because you're more likely, I think, to get autoimmunity in a world with viruses and with bacteria. As you get older, you're more likely to be exposed to something. The cumulative risk of you being exposed to something that induces autoimmunity, given your genetics, is higher. So that may partly explain the age-related risk, but also anything that we can do to reduce whole body inflammation, obviously weight loss, and then maybe take something like ModuCare. I don't have any money in that company, but I've learned from a very good, good functional medicine doc, medical doctor in Georgia. Um, 
that that this actually helps adjust TH2 skew in people that do have autoimmunity. And so I'm not pitching a product here for profit, but it's Moducare, M-O-D-U-C-A-R-E. And he's actually going to come to IPAC EDU and, and uh, teach a course as well. So um, the, the, just imagine that there might be something like 50% uh, of people, I would imagine, that have prior autoimmunity. And we're talking about, and I'm writing a big review on this as well, I'm behind in the uh, in the submission date, but I've done a ma major ma major literature search on all the specific autoantibodies that were present in the people and reported to be present in the people that got serious COVID or died from COVID. And sure enough, if you take those autoantibodies and look at the proteins that they're targeting in the human body and then do the reverse analysis that I did in my pathogenic priming analysis, which, you know, now I'm finding homology between human proteins and SARS-CoV-2 proteins. Sure enough, there's immunogenic epitope similarities between them as well. And so, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that our immune system has to, the most important thing our immune system has to do is determine self from non-self. When I teach my immunology course, that's why I start first. If you, know, if you learn anything from this, it's not challenging to create an immune system that can target pathogens that are out there. Insects do it, mollusks do it, it's not very impressive. But if you can live in a world where we put so many different things into our bodies and we interact as a cosmopolitan species, when every niche that's available in the species, we're gonna run into everything, we're really challenging the limits of the extent of, uh, you know, the intelligence of our immune system with uh, these exposures. Um, it has to determine self from non-self. And there's some very clever ways that it does that. There, it presents all the, pro, all the proteins in our body are actually expressed. I think it's in the, in the thymus uh, where it's presented, the normal protein uh, 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 self-antigen is presented and then another cell comes in and says, yes, okay, yourself versus non-self. And then it, it, and so we're, we're kind of constantly checking, are you, are you friend or foe, friend or foe, friend or foe? It's not just roving antibodies. You know, there are some roving antibodies that are generic antibodies that kind of get the thing started, but um, there's so much going on. We really are challenging it. And then to say, oh, for every human on the planet, take this particular virus. It, you're guaranteeing that some percentage of people are going to die from that experience. You're guaranteeing that some percentage of people are going to actually develop be primed for autoimmunity and then you say okay now we're going to do it to you every three or four months my goodness my goodness you do this it doesn't reflect natural infection at all you don't get infected every three or four months with high levels of viremia to something you just fought off so why are we inducing strong auto, uh, immune responses with vaccines every three or four months these people are doomed and, and I this really like this really scares me in terms of fertility it feels like that this is the that's that's a point at which you don't gamble that anything that you're going to introduce that could involve something that is systemic like that yeah. uh, within an individual, then you, you shouldn't, you should introduce it very slowly to uh, the human population as a system. Also, it seems just, just insane to make a decision to just, you know, all at once go full blast. Now, and Dr. Pellick, you're he's, on mute. He's, yeah, he's muted. Go ahead. Steve. Um, it's interesting because I've talked to a lot of immunologists about this and no one gives me a straight answer. And when you're taking a viral protein that's an anchored protein and expressing it in a host cell, so it's going to be presented on the surface of that cell, 
how do you get an immune response? There has to be an inflammatory attack against that, that host cell that damages it, probably kills it, probably generates exosomes that are small enough that neutrophils and, and uh, dendritic cells and other antigen-presenting cells can then take it to the lymph nodes where you're going to have your T cells and then you'll stimulate your B cell response. So there has to be destruction of the tissue at the site where the vaccine is able to penetrate inside those cells. And because the vaccine is able to spread beyond the site of injection and show up in the liver and the spleen and the adrenals and the ovaries and apparently in heart as well because they're now starting to see spike protein with people that have myocarditis. So we know it travels. It, it seems to me that if you're having repeated exposures and you already have some antibodies from before, you're just creating a, a, a better way of actually killing those cells in the first place, even not even through complement, you know, with uh, antibody yeah. binding to the surface. So it, it's a hard thing to get a vaccine exactly. correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. So, uh, Steve, you, you'd be very interested in, to learn. You probably have heard about ER stress, endoplasmic reticulum mm -hmm. stress, and the unfolded protein response. Mm -hmm. And what this is is if the, as, the, as the cell fills up with spike protein, well, that cell is also trying to be whatever cell it also is. So it has all the other proteins from that in the in, in the endoplasmic reticulum. And as the cell swells, then there's two proteins that are supposed to be in touch with each other. They come apart. And that tells the cell that, hey, you're not regulating your protein production properly. So right. it has a choice of shutting down transcription, shutting down translation, or dying. And it's through that cell death, and it can th occur through apoptosis or through necrosis. It's through that cell death, then we get the rest of the immune response solicited. Right. I think you're exactly right to that. Yeah, and if it's a neuron or a skeletal muscle or a cardiomyocyte, they're not replaced by right. new cells that are of that type. It's you no know, scar tissue. That's and, right. And that's, and in, that's in, the problem. In the, in, the, in the brain itself, then we see these syncytia where the cells are combined. You have two separate cells that become one and you have multinuclei because the mm -hmm. spike protein actually causes the two cell membranes to fuse. So mm -hmm. what good is that cardiomyocyte for the, uh, for the beating heart? It's no good. And then the, the, those cells ultimately die. And so you have the entire infusion of the immune system coming to clean up the cellular debris and the strange folded proteins that are coming out. So, you know, we're looking at a very, very unusual approach to handling viral infection in the first place. Uh, normally what happens in a viral infection, you see an infected cell, it starts putting off viruses. Yes, there's cell death. Yes, there's some inflammation, uh, but it's a very targeted immune response to viral epitopes that are usually on the surface of viral proteins. Sometimes they're interior as your study that you mentioned probably showed. Um, but, you know, when you end up with that, if you're immune, then you end, if, once you're immune, you don't get a full-blown immune response again. You don't need to because you don't have high viremia. You don't have the systemic, you know, cytokines and right. you don't have the uh, proliferation, mass proliferation of B cells, uh, uh, producing huge amounts of antibodies. It's a localized immune response. So your, your body has solved the Rubik's Cube once, so it doesn't need to test as many Quite things. Handily. Call it again. 
Yeah. Right. Way to so, handle. We, we've talked um, today. We've talked a lot about uh, antibodies and, and B cells. Um, I'm something that I have been curious about uh, early on during the pandemic, during 2020, I remember reading that um, there were some locations around the world where uh, T cell response was measured. And my understanding is it's a lot easier to look for antibody um, response than it is to look for T cell response. But I remember uh, reading that um, in Singapore, uh, 50% of people showed cross-reactive T cells in places in Europe. It was, I think, from the high 20s to the mid 30s. But I, I only saw like maybe five or six countries mm-hmm. in in two studies that that uh, that I had collected. Um, you know, have, have we seen more of that? And does that give us a sense of how many people, you know, have already experienced um, SARS-CoV-2 or and, and, you know, would they even need the vaccine? Well, so well, actually, go ahead, Steve. I'll let you take this one first. Yeah, I'll take. Yeah, we've actually been working with um, Community DX, which uh, Dr. Sam um, uh, uh, Ismail Samudi. He, we've been looking at the same samples from people that measuring antibody levels and measuring T cell responses, and they they correlate really very strongly. Except more recently, he's now been looking at people who've been vaccinated. And looking at their T cell response, and he finds that with the second T cell response, they don't have any T cell response. You know, when they're when he's when he's measuring it in people who have been vaccinated once and they're now vaccinated again. Yeah, I think that it's I read amazing. twelve to thirty percent uh, after the initial trial data. Does that sound right? Yeah, it sounds right. Now, and this is his data, and he's I know he's looked at these forty people this way, and so this is problematic. But the other thing to think about is that when you have a T cell response, it works really well against cells that are infected because you have to have the presentation of major histocompatibility antigens along with the, the viral proteins. So when you have the virus free floating around, um, the T cells don't really recognize it. That's right. It, it has to be an infected cell. Whereas when you have an antibody response, the vast majority of those antibodies are actually sticking to the virus itself long before it binds to a cell and and getting it before it can actually get inside and and replicate. So the B cell response seems to be extremely important, um, probably better in terms of of lasting a long time. But the the amazing thing is with the vaccines, they don't seem to be eliciting a very strong T-cell response. Right. So the the reason why they're called T-cells is because they're produced, uh, they mature in the thymus, right? So the B-cells and T-cells all start with the uh, uh, hemipoietic uh, orchestra symphony that happens in the the bone marrow. And B-cells mature in the bone. Um, And Dr. Pellick is exactly correct. Uh, There may be correspondence between B-cells and T-cells mostly overall, but you have to be producing the right B cells. And if you have a vaccine, you may be producing B cells that then go on to produce antibodies that are irrelevant or worse Mm -hmm. for the virus, the variant that you're now infected with. For Mm -hmm. instance, our president right now, President Biden, has just tested positive again, Mm -hmm. kind of in a a relapse, if you will, of of COVID-19. And I hope he does okay. But there's no doubt in my mind he's producing antibodies. 
no mm -hmm. doubt in my mind. And antibodies are not a sufficient measure of immunity. And I'll refer back to Dr. Pellick's original message, which is natural immunity itself confers a broader, that is a, a higher diversity of B and T cell, memory B and T cell responses than the simple spike protein. I think there may be five antigen sources on the spike protein that produce measurable antibody uh, responses. And so it's not just, hey, yes, I have antibodies and I'm vaccinated, so I have antibodies, so therefore I'm immune. It's I've, I'm, I'm vaccinated or I was infected and I have antibodies and B cells and T cells and memory B cells and T cells mm -hmm. that actually produce the relevant immune response that can match our own, uh, the, the, the current infection. And that's where this all falls apart. This all yeah. falls apart completely uh, due to original antigenic sin, due to ADE, mm -hmm. due to just the inability to mount a meaningful immune response whatsoever. Uh, James, I'm wondering, you know, the elderly, they're being hit the hardest with COVID in terms of severe COVID. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, in my generation, I'm 65. And long before that, they were taking tonsils out of people. And so the tonsils are an important part of your immune system for educating T cells. Do you think it's possible that maybe... There's some correlation between people that don't have tonsils. I think it's a great hypothesis that people that have had past tonsillectomies actually have a risk of serious COVID and severe COVID yeah. or influenza or measles when that comes or whatever. I think it's a great hypothesis. And I, I, th I think that should be testable through a survey study. That'd mm -hmm. be great to know. Yeah. I've never heard anyone talk about it in the context of COVID-19, but it's, it strikes me that that is an example of, again, where we've had this kind of arrogance on the part of the health authorities that, oh, yeah. you know, let's just get rid of it because it's, it's, it swells, it's a little painful, so let's take it out. <laughs> and it's, it's part of your actual immune system. In, in, in revolutionary France, if you weren't using your head right, they took that off too. So that's yes. the example that I use when it comes to the gung-ho surgeons of the past. So. Right. You know, what is this thing? Oh, I don't know. Just throw it over there for now. It's okay. obviously not working properly. So, yeah. Head off. You, you, you two guys can tell me if I'm being paranoid, but it feels like there's a, a sleight of hand in the use of, of just the spike protein. I remember, um, you know, hearing about this. And before I had um, concerns about the vaccines, I thought, oh, well, that's that's clever. They're They're focusing on, you know, the one part of the genome that is not like, uh, like the other, you know, similar coronaviruses, so that uh, they'll train the immune response to to just target that. But but then I thought, you know, and the the more I had questions about the vaccines, and the more I saw data that made me really worry, um, it, it it made me wonder. Okay, well, why not use the whole coronavirus genome or or multiple parts of it, uh, or greater uh, portion of it, because it gives you more targets for people to elicit antibodies and perhaps that will even, you know, catch more immune systems, uh, maybe have better efficacy. And then I thought, but wait a minute, um, if we were able to do that, we would have been able to make vaccines for coronaviruses previously, right? And so it, it, it started to sort of all not make sense in my head, or if we can make vaccines for coronaviruses now, by targeting just the spike protein, now we are 
allowing for the propagation of future coronaviruses where the genome is once again very similar to bat coronaviruses except that that one part uh that that somehow looks you know i don't know unnatural that doesn't look like anything that we've seen um it 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 all it, it doesn't make a consistent story right to me so i i i guess i i don't know if, if if it's a question or if if the question that i have is implicit in my confusion of the story but you know what it makes perfect sense why didn't they just reverse engineer the immunity of people that survive SARS-CoV-2 oh this person has here are all the antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 this person has these are the antibodies therefore that we want because it worked for this person okay look at another person this person survived SARS-CoV-2 infection it was mild or symptomatic or whatever or even severe these are the antibodies that the human body produces. What are the antibodies actually targeting in the SARS-CoV-2 virus? And then they could make a virus-like particle that has antigens that match those yeah. antibodies. However, it's, the caveat it's that exactly I what we, we were doing at Conexus. And, and the interesting thing is the most immunogenic protein that's actually in the SARS-CoV-2 virus is not the spike protein. That's right. It's actually the membrane protein, which is also on the surface of the virus and is very similar to other coronaviruses. So I think the way nature has done this is you, you, you target as many different parts of the virus as you can with your immune yep. system. So you really hit it hard. So it doesn't have a chance to, to continue to propagate and, and, and uh, basically crawl along and continue to replicate, which is what the, the vaccines are doing. They're, they're not wiping out the virus. They're just dampening it that's right. And it's still able to then undergo mutations to well, can, evade that. Can, just like you're can their plan be steel manned? Uh, you know, it, 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 it is, it's shocking that with so many vaccines being developed around the world, so many of them mm -hmm. focused on the spike. Um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong about that, but yeah, um, 200. Uh, uh, steel, you know, what's the best steel man? Well, if I could, before we do, we do that, I'd like to say, yeah, the membrane protein's a good target, but nucleocapsid actually has an equal number uh, or more than the, the spike protein, even though it's an interior uh, of yeah. uh, immunogenic epitopes. The caveat that I would give, and I have to put that out there, because you just heard Dr. James Lyons-Weiler say of IPAC is, why didn't they make the vaccine this way? They should also take out the unsafe epitopes. And that would then modulate exactly what type of immune response, what are, our, what are our limits? We're not being intelligent about the way we design these. And I said this in an interview uh, that kind of went viral. Uh, it was on the news. There's no rational basis for the design of vaccines. There's, there's, no, rational, there's no rationality used in vaccines that, 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 that are easy to make, quick to make, first to market, and all the rest. It, what I want to say is that it was what Steve was working on sounds more rational than all the rest of them. Uh, but I would add the caveat, take out those unsafe epitopes. Well, and, and Jonathan Cui um, uh, pointed out to me that uh, in the literature, there is discussion, never put furin cleavage site in a vaccine. Hmm. Hmm. That because it's too dangerous, maybe. I don't know, but. Well, you're gonna, you're gonna at least if it's gonna be used with this technology for adenovirus or or mRNA technology, put a cleavage site into it, it's gonna be released into the circulation, right? Right. We yeah. know the spike protein impairs the uh, yeah. endothelium, uh, and so we end up with uh, um, 
leaky blood-brain barrier, among other mm -hmm. things. And I, I gave a talk in Grand Rapids last month where I said that the spike protein may be the universal, a universal synergistic toxin, right? So you mm -hmm. have to think, this is, this is the problem with modern medicine. They externalize all the costs. They don't think of their attendant consequences. Right. So it, it, well, not all of medicine, but, you know, with the spike protein being able to impair the bread, blood brain barrier, does that mean that everyone that, that, that has a pharmaceutical product that has a particular toxicological profile then has to go back and redo the toxicological profiles? Mm -hmm. And what advice do we give patients that are on a particularly dangerous drug if it makes it into the brain while their blood brain barrier is impaired? And, and you know, as a biologist, I'm fascinated by the etiology of disease. And the SARS-CoV-2 has been a gift in the sense that uh, we've learned a lot, a lot about the etiology of, mm -hmm. of respiratory illnesses and diseases and coagulopathies and things that, you know, we've known in bits and pieces here and there. But what do we do? To, you know, to steel man the argument, if I was Moderna, the writing's got to be on the wall for these guys. Yeah, well, I wonder, to be well, I wonder, James, like, I mean, the technology, like the spike protein is problematic. But the technology itself, whether you're introducing it with adenovirus or RNA, where you're getting your host cell to actually make this protein on its surface. I mean, this is what we're now talking about for influenza vaccines and other vaccines that are coming because it's cheap to produce. The technology itself, I think, is not safe. Yeah, I think now, you're, right. you're also in a very unique position, uh, Steve, uh, because you at the University of British Columbia mm -hmm. came up uh, or were present or colleagues with Dr. Peter Cullis and his mm -hmm. team as they were developing yeah. the very lipid nanoparticle technologies that have now since gone through various levels of intellectual property dispute. But long story short, are mm -hmm. being used in both the Pfizer and the Moderna COVID-19 vaccines. And I'm curious to ask uh, if if there is any insight you can give into historically, how was that process going? Did it seem like a promising technology that you had faith in? Was it something that, because the impression that the public has, I think, who are paying attention is that these were not safe. These were not fully tested and then were pulled out of the toolbox for a convenient use in this context. But is there anything you can tell us about? Well, you know, I mean, Dr. Peter Collis at, at UBC professor, he was in the lab right next door to me when I was a graduate student. And since that time, they were developing what they called liposomes at the time to encapsulate basically as, 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 as delivery systems. But, but for the decades of research that was done, its primary application was really to deliver toxins into cells to kill them. Um, it was really more recently that it was considered as a delivery system for RNA that you could then make a protein that would serve as a vaccine. And that's very, very recent. But really, there's been many companies that Peter has, Cullis has actually uh, founded and developed and they haven't been very successful until as of late. And even now there's some of the comp the different companies that he co-founded are in fact now in patent disputes with each other. But it's, but basically it wasn't really meant for delivery for genetic engineering per se, which is, you know, these are genetic vaccines. It was meant to deliver toxins with targeting you know, proteins on the surface of these lipid nanoparticles, as we now call them, 
So they would go to their right organ, but the biggest problem is almost most of these liposomes went to the liver. Now, the liver is your second largest organ in your body after your skin, and it's a detoxifying system. And that's the problem when you're delivering poisons for, let's say, cancer cells, a lot of it's actually going to the liver and causing liver damage. So this has always been an obstacle. Now I've, I've got another personal uh, desire here, which is, so my, my approach to discussions broadly is intentionally to avoid any sort of divisive uh, rhetoric. I don't like classifying people into camps of thought, left or right politically. So given that, I've got a personal desire to try to bridge two groups, which in particular are the viruses exist group and viruses don't exist at all group. And I think it's important to do because even under, for example, there's a Stop the Shots campaign that's been launched by the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. And on the Rumble page for the video in question, there's people in there basically dismissing the entire premise of the campaign because, hey, viruses don't exist at all. And that's problematic if we're collectively trying to influence positive change. Perhaps it's taking a potentially dangerous pharmaceutical product off the market, whatever it is. It feels as though we shouldn't get caught up on on things that really should have been in, it, it resolved in some way long ago. So my personal desire is to is to get a clip uh, that I can cut out of this video and publish as the explanation, like bridging the gap between the virus and the no virus community. So I, I wonder if each of you would be interested in explaining what is why do people still question the mere existence of the thing? And how can it be explained to those if it is true that viruses exist, which I think we at this table agree is the case? How can we explain it in a way that might um, that might finally uh, cross off those last T's for those in question? Do you want to start with this one, James? Or I've, I've spent an inordinate amount of time on this problem, so I guess I'll start. Uh, Look, in terms of the first part of the question, who are these people? What are they like? Why do they keep asking this question? You have the people who are, I have no doubt in my mind, uh, here to obfuscate. You might call them controlled opposition. I'm not going to name any names, and I don't even have any suspects because I haven't analyzed it that deeply. But it's a great way to stop any rational discussion about viruses, viral proteins, um, the efficacy of a vaccine. I mean, what are you worried about a, a secondary infection for uh, if there's no virus that you're actually infecting? You know, just the whole problem goes away for people who, you know, just want to control the narrative, so to speak. Then you have the people who follow those people. And those people um, uh, oftentimes are being uh, misled out of an abundance of uh not knowingness is the polite way to say that. And uh, this is in part and parcel why I created IPAC EDU. I don't want to turn this into a commercial, but here's our course catalog. Um, if you use the argumentation that the virus has not been isolated, uh, there's no evidence that it can infect animal cells, it's never been transmitted from one animal to another, all of that has been falsified in the scientific literature and in a debate of some people who were claiming early on the virus doesn't exist, I brought that literature to them. The very next day, they were repeating the exact same claims. They were, and so what's, you know, not only is that, you know, somewhat frustrating and that I spent two, two and a half hours debating this point, 
um, it didn't move the needle for them to understand that, yes, there are animals that have been infected with this SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, yes, those animals developed SARS-CoV-2 infection-like symptoms and antibodies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what, what's, what's the, okay, what, what's the winning argument here that says, okay, um, a, a virus exists or doesn't exist? It's really a series of questions. Do they suspect that this virus and only this virus doesn't exist? Or perhaps they suspect that all beta coronaviruses don't exist? Or perhaps all viruses don't exist? And they, they, they postulate William's, costula, William, uh, sorry, uh, Koch's postulates as uh, the gold standard in 2022 for causality. We have better gold standards for causality, but do they know, another question, that Koch actually failed to demonstrate causality between disease and pathogens that he was studying that later on proved to be definitely caused by the pathogen that his postulates uh, failed to support. Uh, third, uh, they always equivocate on the definition of what do you mean by isolated? For me, from a molecular biology standpoint, if you can successfully isolate the RNA or DNA of an organism and sequence that you've demonstrated its, its existence, especially if you then blast it against a database and it aligns with other organisms that are like that, um, that's not something that just happens by chance in a computer. It's not something that's forced to happen by the sequencing technology. So again, there's layers and layers and layers of unknowingness about how next-gen sequencing works and how the BLAST algorithm works and all the rest. And I guess, you know, I was recently reading on the microbiome about the paleo microbiome of our ancestors, and they can take coprolites. They take, take feces of, of people who lived thousands and thousands of years ago, and they can sequence the microbes that lived there. Those microbes were never isolated, so to speak, but based on their DNA sequence alone, we can blast it against the database and we can say, oh, here's a sequence we never learned about, but it's this type of microbe or that type of microbe on the basis of its similarity. And so at, at some point in time, I, the question that I have for them is how much of the consilience of the evidence there's so much evidence that points to the existence of the virus. How much more consilience do they need where everything agrees? There's no evidence that it conflates or falsifies the data. What's their test to actually falsify, you know, the, the, the statement the virus exists? I've never seen them come up with a test other than Koch's postulates, and it's a very weak test. So hopefully I did that. I hopefully answered your question, Liam, but... Uh, you answered it in, in incredible scientific terms that many academics, I'm sure, will be able to understand. I wonder, perhaps, Dr. Pellick, uh, I don't want you to simply, you know, repeat what, what James said, uh, you know, more simply. I'd be curious to hear your, in your own words, your thoughts as well. And I wonder if we can put it in terms that are fairly simple uh, for those like myself who do not come from the scientific academic background, because in my experience, certainly there are sort of thought leaders who, who are academic uh, and uh, and are rather famous uh, for their um, advocating the no virus theory. But there's also a lot of people like myself who uh, are not even just trusting so much, but it is the best available evidence they've seen, at least in their minds. Uh, so for those people as well, for those who do think in simpler terms, uh, more along the lines of 
of casual speak. What do you think? Sure. I mean, there's a whole field of virology in which people dedicate their lives to studying isolating and, and studying viruses. I think the question at hand is, well, is COVID-19 caused by SARS-CoV-2? And I think the evidence for that is, you know, firstly, we've got pictures of the virus from people who've had SARS-CoV-2, had, have had COVID-19, and you can see the virus with its spiky surface, which is how it got defined as a coronavirus, its crown-like appearance. It, it's, it's been isolated in level three labs and propagated in cells. And then again, you can see them by electron micrographs uh, that they actually have the virus. They can actually see it. Then as pointed out, it's been sequenced. Actually, the virus has been sequenced now literally from hundreds of thousands of people that have been sick. And it's the same virus that they get in their sequence. Or it's so sophisticated that we can actually see the variants in their mu simple mutations in less than 1% of the structures of these proteins. So we know we have it. We would never have been able to develop a PCR test. We would have never been able to develop a rapid antigen test. We would never be able to do the antibody serological tests that we do at Conexus um, or any other uh, company that has developed antibody-based tests. We would not have been able to develop drugs like Paxlovid, which are very specific for inhibiting one of the protease that's in the virus. Uh, we wouldn't be developing monoclonal antibodies that are therapeutics that actually can be effective in treating you know, this virus in people. Um, and other medications that are, you know, on the way, had we not had the right virus. So the, as pointed out by James, the evidence is so overwhelming. There's no compelling reason to believe that we haven't got the right culprit. All the evidence would point that this is it. And that's why we've been able to diagnose it and even treat it. And that's exactly what you want. Liam, I'm really glad that you asked that question, um, if, if for no other reason, because th this question gets directed at me a lot and I don't have um, the knowledge that the two of you do or the, the you know, or, or know exactly where to look quickly in the literature to find out, uh, you know, where there are pictures of this or something like that. Um, so I'm glad that the two of you and, and Jonathan Cooey and others uh, are, are speaking to this because it, it, it almost feels like... Um, you know, on, on my Substack, I think I've I've had dozens of the the question asked me dozens of times, uh, where it, it it begins to feel feel like a form of harassment. But it, it is it's it's a very interesting philosophical question that we actually have to to stand back and appreciate with respect to the way science and civilization meet, right? Which is that, um, you know, we each have various expertises in different fields. And to the extent that we may be correct or incorrect about something, people um, attach a, a level of proxy trust, right? Um, uh, so, you know, people will, uh, you know, uh, trust the expert, right? Um, and uh, however, um, you know, just trusting the experts means that you can also have the wool pulled over your eyes, right? There, there are such things as con men in the world. Um, you know, the, the more we can establish uh, something like um, 
a good community where people are uh, working with each other and checking each other's work. And the closer we can be to that community, the more we can have a sense of a model that, you know, we're not just putting tro- proxy trust in one person, but putting proxy trust in a community. But sure. even then, uh, as we've seen during the pandemic, uh, mass media can uh, portray, you know, false stories as true and true stories as false. And so I, I can see why it is that we've reached this point in civilization where there are going to be questions about science that can't be seen with the naked eye and that people can't easily participate in. And so, um, you know, this, this is, I, I, I'm not even sure exactly how, but I feel like it is a question of civilization that, that we're facing right now. And perhaps even uh, we're going to have Matthias Desmond on in a few weeks, perhaps this, this is part of, um, the the concerns over the potential of totalitarian society right where um you can't establish enough proxy trust between the experts and everyone to know uh you know to to the common person that what the two of you do is nearly invisible in a sense right um so we understand that and i feel for that because there are areas that are outside of my expertise that i'd like to learn more about but my approach to that is if it's important to me i'm going to go learn more about it Mm -hmm. I'm going to. I'm not going to take up everybody else's time to, you know, put a demand on someone to prove to me something. I'm going to go and read a book or read some scientific papers or attend a class and so on. And so, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, uh, thank you for acknowledging that it is a real problem for some people because after Fauci and his team have completely demolished confidence, I don't like the word faith, but confidence in the scientific process. I just simply remind remind people that when people do that, they're not doing science. They're doing what I call science-like activities, and they're passing it off as science, right? Some people call it pseudoscience, but just remember that the fraudsters that are at play here stand to gain billions and have gained billions in revenue uh, by misleading the public on things like this is relative safety and what they knew at a particular time and all the rest. Mm-hmm. But there's really complicated things that can be understood fairly simply. For instance, when uh, Stephen was talking about PCR, I could hear the, the 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 brains popping off out there listening, going, "Yes, but Carrie Mullis said that PCR shouldn't be used, and isn't there, even Dr. James Lyonsweiler said that there's problems with using PCR." Blah blah blah. blah. The devil's in the detail for sure, but Dr. Pollock made a, an extremely good point. There's hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of sequences that have been created. And their counterexample is sometimes the counter argument is how do you know you're not just getting arbitrary sequences out of the human genome? Well, if that were the case, then when we did the phylogenetic analysis and reconstructed the family tree of all of those sequences, then the Asian the, the viral sequences that came out of Asians would cluster with Asians and Africans with Africans, right? And Europeans with Europeans, not the transmission pathway, but we don't see that. It, they definitely cluster by variant clade. We don't, you know, that they reflect with fairly good uh, accuracy the transmission chain from person to person. In fact, there's an entire field of study in epidemiolo- molecular epidemiology to study transmission chains by looking at sequences and seeing who infected who to study the, the transmission dynamics in a population. That there's something called phylodynamics. And, you know, I, I talk about this in my book on Ebola even, and I show one of the transmission chains among the 
the groups. And, you know, initially the epidemiologists were treating Ebola like it was so airborne, basically anybody could infect anybody in a village. But then they did phylogynamics and they realized, uh, Jeff Townsend at, at Yale University realized, hey, this is uh, this travels in social units. You have to have fairly intimate contact for Ebola. Mm -hmm. And they understood that through phylogynamics. So he's the guy that said to them, no, you're not going to get, you know, 100 million Africans infected with Ebola by January of 2015. So they decided not to pull the plug in in the world, right? Because if we have 100 million Africans and it was tran that transmissible, forget it. We're all just, it's the same thing as being hit by an asteroid or a meteor, you know, that's so big that it would take out the humanity. It, it we came that close with Ebola towards, if you follow the epidemiology models, which were grossly wrong, uh, to an end of the world scenario. Uh, but Jeff Townsend said, no, wait a minute. It actually transmits in groups because look at the phylogenetics. So how can we do phylogenetics on sequences from viruses that tell us with good faith that it transmits from person to person this way, not that way, if a virus doesn't exist? I mean, and so I, while I feel for them, I honestly, part of, the, part of the tipping point for me to create IPEC-EDU was when a biochemist came out and said that there's no such thing as a virus, it's just exosomes. At that point in time, I said, I have to educate. And people need bio one, they need bio two, they need virology. I'm still trying to get Jessica Rose to, to, to teach virology for us. She's got about 200 people waiting for her to sign up. But anyway, you know, we have an epidemiologist who's going to teach epidemiology to the public. It's here. You want to learn? Here. We're giving you more than you could possibly ever hope for at, at a cost that is not even, it doesn't even compare to what a university class would would cost you. So we're trying to do our very best to educate the public, to empower the public so that they can think for themselves better. Okay. Well, you've given me the counter test then, um, it, because it, being completely fair, none of us has time to learn all the world's expertises, fields, uh, you know, uh, during one lifespan. However, if a community exists that has uh, deep skepticism about a field, um, the way that they can test is to select one member of that community in whom they have a great deal of trust. There you go. Have that person train, spend the 5,000 hours in the lab or whatever amount of time that it takes them to get to the point where they can do, where they can follow the steps themselves yeah. and then put their own hands on it. And I've, then, I've, I've and suggested that, that many times. Just take one person, put them in the lab, have them do the sequencing, have them do the blast analysis, and then have them come back and say, hey, wait a minute. And to an no. extent, it, it happens at, at the university level, except that, that we don't think of that person coming from a skeptical community, which which maybe we should. Maybe we should we should, you know, be ingraining in teenagers before going to college. Um, you know, maybe you should come in with with uh, seeds of doubt about everything that you're going to study so that you approach it that way. And so that you're also communicating with, you know, the entirety of the community that you came from, including the skeptics. And that may help reconnect society in a sense where proxy trust has um, stronger bonds in the right places. So maybe maybe that's it. Maybe we're, we're, we can just toss them back the counter test. Maybe, maybe I just don't have the right face to be that person. Maybe maybe <laughs> I'm actually maybe I'm actually lying to everybody too. So they, no, that's an actually a very good experiment uh, that, that could be done. Take the, the most. And by the way, I also want to point out that skepticism is part of science. So exactly. I celebrate the skeptics. I celebrate their doubt. But if you're coming at it from a sociological or psychological point where it's really painful for you to say the word science, then don't. That's not science. Don't be skeptical of science. Be skeptical of fraud. Right. And so 
I don't I don't think people should have faith in science. I think they should understand science as a way of knowing. It's a process of discovery, the process of trying to learn something. And anybody who says that it's a fact if they come out of science, you know, that's kind of sketchy. Uh, you know, facts are truth. Truth is unknown to science in, in the end. If you're yeah. a good scientist, you actually can put a little reserve on what you think is true and then be ready to learn something new the next day. Yeah, no, I agree with you, James. I mean, that's the nature of science is that it's self-correcting. At the end of the day, we will get closer and closer to the truth of what's going on. But it does require that, that you're open-minded in some respects, but also that you have good critical thinking skills and that we do the experiments to test our hypotheses. And if they don't work out the way we think, then we have to be prepared to look at other op other explanations for the phenomena that we see and that's how we science works it progresses uh, we don't defer to because it's published in the literature from one person or two people we actually are looking for a body of knowledge that builds over time the problem is that that faith in science is really being when and i guess it is a faith for most people in science right i mean the scientists we are not operating out of faith per se. We're trying to do it based on knowledge and, and building a body of knowledge that makes sense, you know, with our models and hypotheses. But, but the idea is that the general public is losing its confidence because as we get a certain kind of narrative that's coming from health authorities, and it doesn't jive with the actual experiences of people, then you have to question a lot of what has happened before. So, for example, I was never really that concerned about vaccines. I've, I figure that, you know, these are, are a very important tool for preventing infectious diseases, and I'd get vaccinated. But these vaccines, now that I've seen with the COVID-19, and how they've been passed. And then now I'm starting to learn more about HIV and, and some of the work done with some of the drugs there and how shady a lot of that was. Then it makes you question all of these previous vaccines. And, and that's not what we wanna be doing with the general public. We're, we're losing our credibility. And- uh, Well, per perhaps it does, perhaps it's good to re-clean it once in a while, though yeah. hopefully it, it, it comes in less costly circumstances. Yes, well, and- let, it, let, me, let me say one last thing on this topic, if I might. While I was the uh, core director at the Bioinformatics mm -hmm. Analysis Corps at the University of Pittsburgh, I had the distinct honor of meeting with over 300 principal investigators and their teams over 10 years to specifically design their studies, Tell them, you know, what kinds of assays they might want to use, for what tissue to use to answer, to ask and answer their questions, and to do their studies, to analyze the data, and to be there during the interpretation, and then participate with them in the writing it up, either for a grant proposal or for a uh, a paper. About a hundred of those led to, you know, useful data. And um, how many people do you think actually committed fraud on my watch, knowing me? None. Well, we had two attempts. Yeah. Out of 300 people that I spoke with, there were two people that I would say were disingenuous and dishonest enough that I would say they're trying to commit fraud. And so public health is the problem. 
The people who took over the CDC in the past, the CDC used to be focused on treatments in the 1970s. When prevention came in and vaccines came in, everything went to the dogs, right? So it's a very narrow cancer. The problem is now that they've taken over all of allopathy, they starved allopathy for funds for three months and they said, thou shalt vaccinate, thou shalt use remdesivir, thou shalt. Mm -hmm. Fauci is a dictator in medicine and he doesn't even practice medicine. He's a dictator in medicine and he practices so-called public health. They dictate policies from the top down. It's a cancer and it's a, it's a scourge that has to be purged. And I celebrate this, this the, the censorship of, I'm sorry, I celebrate the skepticism of people who have lied to you in the past. It's that simple. How many times has he lied? Also, I can't wait to hear from Matthias Desmond on your program, and especially when he gets to describe me. Ask him to describe, ask him to teach you how to gaslight. Gaslighting is saying, wear a mask, then the very next day, don't wear a mask. Then the next day, don't wear a mask, don't wear a mask. The common person is going to say, I didn't science hard enough. Just, just, just stop this nonsense and tell me what to do. Hmm. And then they've got you. That's gaslighting. So yes, you should be skeptical of people who have lied to you in the past especially over such things as important as public health. Now we're coming to the end of what is, I, and I do say this every episode, full disclosure, what has been one of the most interesting conversations I've ever been a part of. Um, but I want to end uh, in part by doing a bit of a victory lap uh, for the Canadian COVID care Alliance. We've had a number of very successful campaigns. The first being the more harm than good uh, campaign that wound up getting Robert Malone censored off of Twitter and then made huge strides on the Joe Rogan podcast, followed by a campaign debunking the myth of the pandemic of the unvaccinated. And we've now launched a third campaign, which is titled, It's Time to Stop the Shots. And because this is an ongoing campaign uh, for the CCCA right now, uh, I wanted to ask Dr. Pellick to speak to this and explain what it is the CCCA is trying to convey to the public and to some of these public health officials that uh, James was just describing as potentially being either blind to certain problems or willfully, in some cases, participating. So, Dr. Pellick, Steve, what is the Stop the Shots campaign and what are you trying to get, get across to people? Well, I think the basic message that is coming from the public health authorities is that COVID is still a serious problem for young people, that, that in fact, um, these vaccines are safe and they're efficacious. And the problem that we see is this is false on all three accounts for young children, people that are, are even, you know, in their, their 20s and, and, and 30s. The, vac the, the virus is, is actually fairly benign. The risks of death are extremely low. You know, for a, for a child, it's like one in a million. What the big problem is that these vaccines from the, the VAR system, for example, that tracks the, um, the risks from vaccines, injury, the risk of myocarditis alone for someone who's under 24 is around one in 4,000 roughly for males with a second shot of a Pfizer or Moderna vaccine. And that's symptomatic myocarditis. We now know that there's also asymptomatic myocarditis that occurs at even greater frequency. And when you have myocarditis, this is not recoverable. Um, you can, 
you can uh, compensate with your body and your heart gets bigger, but it just seeds, you know, further heart disease later on in life. And the outcomes are very poor for people that have myocarditis. So, I mean, that's just one example. And then now we're finding that when children are vaccinated, that they don't actually, it's, it's not efficacious. Even in the Pfizer trial that justified to the FDA and then to Health Canada, that, that vaccination of a six-month-old to, let's say, a, a two-year-old child, in, in that, that study, which was fraught with problems, the difference between the two groups was one person. And it wasn't even that they were sick. It was that they had tested positive of having COVID based on PCR testing and that they seemed to, to um, you know, no serious cases, no hospitalizations. I mean, the difference between one person to decide whether or not you're going to be vaccinating millions of children, it's just, it's, it's, it's gone to the level of being sheer lunacy that we have to be much more adamant about stopping the shots. And it's not just the Canadian COVID Care Alliance, you know, campaign that's underway. There's all kinds of campaigns throughout the world. I just watched one that was called uh, Stop the Shots that um, Paul Alexander was involved in that had about 40 doctors that all of them said, you know, stop the shots and they explained it. And so I think we're having a very strong campaign that's being mounted already of infomercials, basically, that's the news, coupled with actual commercials during those infomercials, which are, are telling people that they've got to get the next shot and that it's safe and it's effective. And we have to counter that with you know, facts and try to get the message out. So Canadian COVID Care Alliance is working hard on that front, as are many other groups around the world. And we're, we're, we're trying to work together to get this message out. Well, that's, that's wonderful. And I'll refer people to www.canadiancovidcarealliance.org where there's a number of wonderful resources. Don't take Steve's word for it. This has been looked at from a variety of angles from folks uh, in a variety of specialties. Uh, the Canadian COVID Care Alliance is quite a large organization now. Um, but as Steve said, it's many other organizations. The World Council for Health is a wonderful one that have uh, uh, featured the um, the campaign. We've got uh, expert ask an expert videos from uh, such professionals as Dr. Eric Payne and Dr. Bonnie Millard. So I highly recommend people go there, even if just to learn, uh, not necessarily because you're already of a, uh, a made up mind. Uh, like we've said, skepticism is the underlying premise of science, essentially. So that's wonderful. Now, James, you mentioned you've got a new curriculum that's going to be launching soon. Did I hear you right? Well, yeah. So we're two years old at IPEC-EDU. Before I get into that, I wanted to say uh, on my Substack, you'll find statistics that back, independent of anything that Dr. Pollock has said, children 0.0002% chance of, you know, it's just tiny, tiny, tiny chance of mor morbidity and mortality whatsoever. And if a child ever dies from COVID, it's probably going to happen after the vaccination 
due to antibody-dependent enhancement, unfortunately, is that bad. The risk is, it's not just that it's unnecessary, and it's not the question of whether it's safe or not. The question is, are we taking into account the, the negative efficacy that we see in the adult populations in real-world data? The data from uh, uh, Massachusetts, the data from Israel, the data that show that when, the more you vaccinate, the more COVID you have and the more severe COVID you have in a population, we're probably going to see kids on ventilators after they vaccinate young kids. And when that happens, then maybe humanity will wake up. But IPAC-EDU is created for the people to empower them with knowledge. We don't tell you how to think or what to think. Um, we just present, you know, fundamentals. Uh, we teach uh, environmental toxicology. We teach uh, basic biology. We teach uh, Wayne Rohde has just signed on to teach a, a course on the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Process and clarify all those programs. We have courses in law, constitutional law that's running right now. We have Andre Angelantoni's vaccine course. And so it's an explosion of availability of knowledge. And each course is live for 15 weeks. It's an hour out of your week, every week, with question and answer with the instructor so you get to have your answer, questions answered, and it's creating a community of IPEC EDUers who uh, get to know each other, and they're starting to ask each other, hey, what courses are you signing up for next semester? So we don't offer a certificate or a degree. I found this niche group of people who are starving for knowledge. A lot of people couldn't make it to college, but they want to they learn. And we have this fantastic course we just signed on the genetics and epigenetics of uh, chronic illness in humans. So... It's a dream come true for me. I was so excited when I when the thoughts really crystallized about the potential here that I, I started shaking. I had so much adrenaline over the impact that this potentially could have on humanity, right? Because then we can have conversations at a much higher level. I got tired of people saying what you said earlier, Liam, which is, you know, speak English to me. Uh, you know, I don't understand what you're saying. Well, now people can take my courses and they can learn some of that language. And it's not jargon. It's just there are names for things. And so and ideas and relationships, but well, we're adding a philosophy track, okay, and I want to create this whole school of thought called popular rationalism, mm -hmm. right? Because if those who are, in, in my view, the people who are doing the philosophy of science have given up, they've all become kind of skeptics or worse, um, and uh, they, they, there's no real solution in academia for any advancement in the philosophy of science. So let's do it ourselves. Let's do it out here. And it's not the first time this kind of revolution has happened with the democratization of the education system. So we're looking at College 2.0, and um, you know everybody's welcome. A lot of questions that we get are things like, "Can I bring my homeschooler?" Um, the courses, if they're appropriate for your homeschooler, have to be taken by the parent, who then uses the material to tutor their child. Because I'm not certified to educate uh, children uh, of any age. We're, we don't do that. So every, everybody's welcome, though. Well, if this podcast is any indication, uh, they're, they're probably great courses. Um, I, I'm finding that uh, uh, that my favorite thing about uh, running the podcast is uh, is some of the world's smartest people are coming to me now to to teach me something. <laughs> so I, I greatly appreciate your time. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Pellick, Dr. Lyons Weiler. Thank you. Um, both. It's a it's a pleasure. Very I enjoyed the experience.
And folks, the uh, links to be able to access both James and Steve's uh, work and everything we've referenced today will be in the description and you'll be able to uh, reach out in various forms to both doctors here by doing that. So thank you very much, gentlemen. Um, I'm going to go to Matthew to uh, ask if he has any final thoughts on what was, once again, a truly wonderful conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I hadn't uh, spoken with Dr. Pellick before, but uh, it was great to get the the two of them together um, because between the two of them, uh, wow, what a, you know, <laughs> uh, what a knowledge set, right? Um, and uh, a lot of things, um, I, I feel like uh, uh, they pushed me extra steps in understanding a lot of uh, what we know. And it was interesting to hear, um, you know, the percentages of, of, of people in Canada who had had already experienced the virus a couple of years ago or, or even earlier. Uh, yep. it, it's very telling, um, but I'm going to continue to, to offer to people the steel man, the, the vaccine designs for me, because um, as smart as the two of them were, they, they, they couldn't come up with a, with a good one on the spot. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it, it just feels like a, a tough, it's so tough to defend at this point. And, you know, I, I think that this conversation was a display of that. So it right. was great to have their time here with us. Yeah, a wonderful cross-pollination of knowledge and wisdom and expertise. Um, so, wonderful. Well, we are uh, we are producing Rounding the Earth content in a couple of different forms. I will repeat what I say every week, which is the best way to support Rounding the Earth is to become a paid subscriber of the Rounding the Earth newsletter. If you're a free subscriber, consider upgrading to paid. It will allow us to continue making uh, video content such as this, and we've got ambitions to uh, further expand our horizons. And obviously, we want to talk to as diverse a group of not just experts but also citizens people in the world who are experiencing the same event but through different lenses and that's something we're going to be bringing you in fact next week um now uh the other way you can support the show is as this video is playing live you'll see on rumble there's this option to send a rumble rant which is essentially a monetized comment so if you want to show your support that's a great way to do it Ladies and gentlemen, we will be back. I will see you on Friday for our Rounding the News weekly news roundup, which is getting a little more interesting every single week. And I'm sure part of that has to do with my wonderful charisma and my beard, and also the fact that we're living in an increasingly interesting world. So ladies and gentlemen, I have been Liam Sturgis. You can find me www.liamsturgis.com. Thank you so much. This has been rounding the earth.